أشهد أن محمد رسول الله أشهد أن محمد رسول الله حي على صلاة حي على الحمد لله الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأن محمدا عبده ورسوله قال الله تعالى وتعاونوا على البر والتقوى ولا تعاونوا على الإثم والعدوان واتقوا الله إن الله شديد العقاب Most respected ulama, elders and brothers in Islam, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. In the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, in Medina Munawwara, there was an individual that was captured from the town of Al-Yamama, and he was from amongst the rulers of that town, and he was captured by the cavalry of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and he was brought to Medina Munawwara. And when he was brought as a captive, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam posed a question to him. And this person's name was Thumama bin Uthal. And he asked him that, what shall we do with you? So he gave him, he gave Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam three options. And he said that if you kill me, then you will be killing somebody that has already killed many people. And if you free me, then you will be freeing a grateful person. And if you wish for property, then I have a lot of wealth. Ask for whatever you wish and I shall give it to you. So Rasulullah left him for the first day. On the second day, he asked the same question and he received a response. And on the third day, after being tied in the masjid for three days, he asked the same question. And this person then said that, Whatever I have told you, I have already told you. So thereafter, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam decides to re- release this prisoner. And he tells him that you are free to go. So Thumama then leaves Madinah Munawwara and on the outskirts near Al-Baqi, he enters into a, a date palm, an orchard, he takes a ghusl, and he comes back 
into Masjid al-Nabawi and in the presence of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he says, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa anna muhammadan rasulullah. Looking at the treatment that he received, the generosity of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the magnanimity of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and the manner in which he was treated as a prisoner in the masjid of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So as a side note, not the focus of the topic today, but this is how Islam treats its prisoners. The kindness, the consideration, these captives and prisoners of war have not been captured for the sake of abusing them and torturing them. Our deen teaches us to be kind, to be considerate, no matter what the narrative may be from the media, these are the teachings of our deen. So he then says to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that I was on my way to perform Umrah from Al-Yamama when I was captured. So give me permission that I can continue and I can perform Umrah. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa gives him the permission and he enters into Makkah al-Mukarramah and it is mentioned that he entered reciting the Talbiyah, reciting Labbaik. And it is narrated that he was from amongst the first individuals to enter Makkah al-Mukarramah reciting the Talbiyah. So when the non-Muslims, when the Quraysh, when the Mushrikeen, they saw him, they became upset and they wanted to kill him. And then it was told to them that, no, don't kill him because he is from amongst the leaders of Al-Yamamah. And they supply us with lots of products. A lot of our goods, our grains come from Al-Yamamah. So if we kill him, it's going to have an impact from the people of Al-Yamamah, it's going to affect our trade. So nevertheless, he proceeds he performs Umrah, he notifies them that I have accepted the deen of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa And then coming to the point of this incident, he says to them that, Wallah, by Allah, from today, not a single grain of wheat will come to Makkah from Al-Yamama except with the permission of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa Not a single grain of wheat will come to Al-Yamama will come from Al-Yamama to Makkah Al-Mukarramah without the permission of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So what was he doing? He was placing an economic sanction on the people of Makkah Al-Mukarramah because of their hostile treatment of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And he was able to do this because not only did he possess the wealth, but he possessed the economic leverage the ability to use the economic influence that he had. He controlled the supply chain of a staple product, which is wheat, into Makkah al-Mukarramah. And as a result of truly controlling that economic supply chain, he was able to place a sanction on Makkah al-Mukarramah because of the behavior of the people against Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So from this incident, we learn some very important Lessons that are pertinent to the events that are taking place currently globally. And the first is that economic leverage and strength are useful to Islam. Our primary reliance and tawakkul is not on the means. It's not on the economy. It is upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that is where our trust is. But having economic means and having economic leverage and influence along with the tawakkul that we have upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is most definitely useful to our deen. And here we find that he was able to exert this economic influence over the people of Makkah al-Mukarramah, and they then began to panic. They began to panic because they realized that what was going to happen now, and it did happen, 
that because of this economic sanction that was placed on them for this staple product, the resource became scarce, and therefore the price of that product began to increase, and it began to hurt them economically. Now, when we look at the global events that are taking place, and particularly in the region of Palestine, whilst we sympathize and we make dua for these people, as we should, we also need to take lessons as a community, as a global community, as a regional community, as a South African community. The first thing that we see here is that we are vulnerable as an ummah, and we are almost powerless to exercise any meaningful influence at a global level to stop the genocide that is taking place against our own people. We are powerless. There is very little that we can do. And it's not because we are few in number. It is not because we are poor. Rather, as an ummah, we have wealth. We have numbers, more than 2 billion people, or close to 2 billion people around the world. And we are geopolitically well connected. Geographically, the Muslim nations surround this area. If anything, they should be able to come to the aid of the people in Palestine. But we do not have unity of purpose. When we talk about wealth, who controls the world's oil? If you take OPEC, which is the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, they control 80% of the world's oil reserves. And from amongst the member states of OPEC, 75% of OPEC's reserves are controlled by a handful of Muslim countries. 75% of OPEC's resources are controlled by a handful of Muslim countries. And when you do the maths, 60% of the world's oil reserves are controlled by less than 10 Muslim countries. Now in a world where oil is considered liquid gold, and despite owning the largest share of the reserves of the most sought-after commodity in the world, we do not possess the economic leverage to use this wealth to stop the genocide that is taking place in Palestine. Despite us controlling this wealth, and we have to ask ourselves, do we really control the wealth, or do we just possess the wealth? Why is this the case? And whilst we cannot control the global wealth and geopolitics here in South Africa, what can we as a Muslim community learn from this particular situation? These global events should force us as a Muslim community in South Africa to rethink our strategy. What is our strategy? When we look at our country, as Muslims, we are in a very unique position in South Africa. Despite being a minority in a secular democracy, we enjoy a number of privileges in South Africa. First and foremost, we have complete and absolute freedom of speech. Unlike any other country in the world, we have freedom of speech and freedom of religion in its true sense. We have... As a migrant community, although we are a migrant community, very few of us are indigenous in this community. We are migrants, but we are an advanced migrant community. Meaning that we have been here for more than a century. And as a result, as a Muslim community, we have many advanced structures. Travel to different parts of the world, whilst there may be large numbers of Muslims in those so-called Western countries, you will find that because they have migrated there in the last 50 years, they are still busy building those infrastructures. They don't have what we have. By and large, we have a very wealthy community. For the size that we are in South Africa, we have a lot of wealth under our control. Alhamdulillah, our economic standing is something to be reckoned with. And we have leaders in business 
We have leading business operations in different industries. You name the industry and we have large businesses that exist today. We have large number of, a large number of professionals in leading positions. Doctors, lawyers, engineers, accountants, so many different types of fields we have leading, not just graduates, but people that are leaders in their fields. When it comes to the technical space, technicians uh, and tradesmen, again, we have leading individuals in that space. So today I want to focus on how we as a South African Muslim community can change our mindsets going forward to develop this collective economic leverage, this economic influence that can be for the benefit of our Muslim Ummah. We may not be able to change the policies globally in a short space of time. We may not be able to affect the geopolitics taking place in the Middle East. But with the resources that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed us with, we can change our mindset to develop economic leverage in our own country. Now, how do we do this? And there's two areas that I want to focus on. And we as a community, community need to start thinking strategically towards this. The first is that how do we become more conscious of our spending by choosing to spend our money on brands and things that align with our values. Now we're not going into the boycott discussion. Inshallah, if we have some time, we will go into that. But we need to think beyond the boycott. A boycott is a short-term strategy. It's a focused strategy. It, in fact, it's part of the plan. It is not the plan. It's part of the plan. It's not the plan. We have to use it effectively, but we have to start thinking beyond the boycott. What can we do to create meaningful economic leverage beyond the boycott. Now, when we talk about consumer spending, this has been in vogue for a long, long time. People will buy certain products because they are completely recycled or they're made from recycled material and these people or these consumers come with an environmental mindset. Others may choose to buy a particular product because it's not tested on animals. So they come with an animal cruelty mindset. And others may choose to buy a particular product because there's no child labor that's involved. MashaAllah, all of this is well and good. But we need to develop a mindset of spending our money to create economic leverage amongst Muslims. This means that we must actively seek to support Muslim businesses. That is point number one that I wish to make today. We need to look at how we can actively support Muslim businesses and start thinking with the mindset like how we buy particular products because they are, there's no animal cruelty, there's an environmentally friendly process. This product is made and sold and distributed by a Muslim brother or sister. You take an example, and we understand this in contemporary times, that a person will drive out of his community or out of his locality to a petrol station five kilometers away use extra petrol going and coming back or extra diesel going and coming back because that particular brand has loyalty points that he is going to earn from spending and filling up his tank. The price is the same. The price of the petrol or diesel is the same, but he's going to a particular place because of the loyalty points that he is going to attain from that transaction. Now you and I need to start thinking further and look at the loyalty points that we are going to get in the Akhirah by spending on our Muslim brothers and sisters. You see, when we spend amongst ourselves, then we find 
that this wealth remains in circulation amongst the Muslim community. Number one, it gives us economic leverage. Like we saw from the example of Thumama radiallahu an, that when he needed to exert that influence for the benefit of Islam, he was able to exert that influence. If we truly possess the economic leverage in the Middle East, and we had to put our foots down, and we had to say that we control jointly 60% of the liquid gold of the time, stop what you are doing, then if we had that economic leverage, we would be able to do it. So again, in our community, whilst alhamdulillah we have developed quite significantly, we need to now take the step forward. And you know, there are certain communities in the world that have really done this very well. For example, if you take, and it's ironic, the Jewish community around the world, you will find that as a business community, they are very close-knit. And as a result, leaving out any uh, uh, problematic practices that they may carry out, but because of their unity of purpose as a business community, you find that they flourish. And there's a particular Jewish businessman in New York who shared some of the insights about how they do business within their community. The first thing that he said is that you must love and this is coming from him. And let us ponder very carefully about where the true source of this is. You must love for your brother in your community what you love for yourself. Hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa Love for your brother what you love for yourself. When you see your fellow Muslim businessmen, your fellow Muslim tradesmen progressing financially, you should not be asking the question, how is he going overseas so much? Hey, his business is doing very well. He's flying business class. Nice car he's got. Rather... You should be saying, Alhamdulillah, one of our own are progressing. One of our own are doing well. Just like we would like to progress in the same way, we should be happy about those within our community that are progressing. Then he mentions that give the people in your community opportunities. Now for us, this is not difficult. We already are quite advanced from a business perspective. We already lead in many industries. For a person in industry A to give an opportunity to a person in industry B and industry C to a professional here and a tradesman there, it's very easy for us. So we should give one another opportunities. Then we should not compete against one another. In business, we should not compete against one another. Now if we understood the reality of risk, then we would understand that we don't need to compete against one another. It's a beautiful story of one scholar and he mentions that he was in a a uh, Muslim country and he went to buy a pair of sandals from a street vendor. So when he went to buy the sandals, the street vendor says to him that, no, I, I don't want you to buy from me. Buy from my friend or my colleague that's two doors down. So this person being in a hurry, he said, well, you know what? Do you not have the stock in size? What's the issue? So he says, no, I've got the size, the color, everything that you want. But that person, that shopkeeper down the road, he has had no sales for the entire day. I've had plenty of sales. Go to him so that he can feed his family as well. This is the type of mentality that we need to develop within ourselves. And then time is running out. There's a flip side to this. As much as we as businessmen, as professionals, as tradesmen want to support one another, there is a responsibility on the businessman, on the tradesman, on the professional to make sure that he is providing the best quality product and service. There's often a complaint that I don't want to buy from a Muslim businessman because there's an inferior quality product. I don't want to support that particular tradesman because he's unreliable. I don't want to work with that professional because he is dishonest. 
So if we want the business to come our way, as businessmen, as professionals, as tradesmen, it is our responsibility that we change our mindset. We begin to invest in the technology, in the quality control, in the people, to produce those quality of products and services that compete with the non-Muslim products and services. So that when somebody says there's no reliable alternative to that particular shoe brand, it gives me something, we should be able to produce that shoe brand. When somebody says, I need to stop purchasing this vehicle brand, where's the alternative that is developed and produced by the Muslim community? So it's a twofold process. On the one hand, we want Muslim consumers to support Muslim businesses. But on the other hand, we need to make sure that Muslim businesses provide the best level of quality of service and products for the Muslim consumers. So respected friends and elders, in conclusion, we spoke about the importance of economic leverage and the role that it plays in influencing society. And we spoke about the hadith of Thumama radiallahu an. And we then spoke about Muslims in South Africa needing to change the way that they think and change the strategy with regards to economic leverage so that we can use the resources that we have to work together to move forward and as much as we want Muslim consumers to support Muslim businesses, we also need to ensure that as Muslim businesses, as Muslim professionals, we are producing at the highest level of quality. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the tawfiq to understand. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us this vision and this foresight in our community. There are just two announcements before we commence with the sunnah. Uh, there's uh, two programs that are taking place in the masjid over this weekend. Tonight there's a zikr program after Isha. And tomorrow there is a program on uh, the Gaza genocide. And that will take place from 2.30 p.m. till Maghrib in the masjid. Uh, Jazakumullah khair.